Please find Ezra chapter 3 in your Bible. Ezra, the book of Ezra, chapter 3. I can't remember if we mentioned that Vicki did sneak in the back this morning. So uh, try not to overwhelm her after the service. You can overwhelm Rick. He likes that sort of thing, but uh, try not to overwhelm Vicki. But it's great to have Vicki with us worshiping the Lord at this day. As you're still... Fingering through your Bibles, trying to find Ezra chapter 3, let me uh, read for you a story from the pen of um, Don Whitney, professor at Southern Seminary in Louisville. He, he penned the following some years ago, one of the saddest experiences of my childhood uh, happened on my 10th birthday. Invitations to the celebration were mailed days in advance to eight friends. It was going to be my best birthday ever. They all came to my house right after school. We played football and basketball outside. My dad grilled hot dogs and hamburgers while my mother put the finishing touches on the birthday cake. After we had eaten all the icing and ice cream and most of the cake, it was time for the presents. But the climax of this grand celebration was a gift from me to them. Nothing was too good for my friends. Cost was immaterial. I was going to pay their way to the most exciting event in town, a high school basketball game. He must have grown up in a pretty small town, but uh, there you have it, 10-year-old, the high school basketball game. The picture in my mind was the perfect ending to a a 10-year-old boy's perfect birthday. Four friends on one side and four friends on the other. I would sit in the middle while we munched popcorn, punched each other, and cheered our high school heroes. Then all of a sudden, the golden moment was shattered. Once in the gym, all my friends scattered, and I never saw them again the rest of the night. Without a word of gratitude or goodbye, they all left without looking back. So I spent the rest of my 10th birthday in the bleachers by myself, growing old alone. I tell that story, not to gain sympathy for a painful childhood memory, but because it reminds me of the way we far too often treat God in worship. We treat God in worship. Uh, Worship is about God. Uh, We gather for really only one reason. It is to uh, worship God. The top of the uh, sermon notes in your bulletin, there is a quotation there from Psalm 95, verse 6. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. That is why we were made That is why we are born again. Uh, That, in a word, is why we live. It is to worship God. And so we're going to consider this great theme from God's word, this theme of of worship. Uh, My end goal is uh, very straightforward, very uh, simple. Uh, I desire that we be a gathering, an assembly of worshipers. I desire that this be forefront in our minds, this be preeminent in our thoughts, that this captivate our hearts, that uh, we understand our high calling, what it is we are called to, what it is we are called for, uh, what purpose we serve in this life. Uh, I pray this gives us motivation, it gives us impetus, I pray this defines our being, the meaning of life, when we get right down to the central essence of it, that we are called to worship God. 
Now, we're going to probe this subject from Ezra chapter 3, and we'll get to that text in just a moment. But I think it behooves us, I think it's important to consider three introductory remarks, to set a framework. So we're all operating from the same premise, the same framework as we enter into Ezra chapter 3. And so I want to share these three introductory remarks with you rather briefly. The first is this. I hope, I trust much of this is repetitive. And yet, uh, we, we far often, we don't need to be remi- taught something new as far often as we need to be reminded of something old. And so I pray this will be old. Now, the first introductory remark is this. Worship is a response to God's worth. So when we, when we throw that word around, that term around, and, and we're trying to wrap our minds around it, that's essentially what we're talking about. Worship, what do we mean? It is a response, our response, to God's worth. So let me share you a few, with you a few experiences of the past week or two. A field covered in blue bonnets. Anybody notice those blue bonnets coming out? A field covered in blue bonnets. A thunderstorm that lasts 12 hours. That was a doozy. A river, a small river spilling over its banks, the Biloxi. A mist set among the hills. A deer grazing at twilight in an open field. A symphony of sound from singing finches at sunrise. A sunset aglow with hues of pink, red, and orange. A field of flowers blossoming, unleashing a bouquet of color. These things are dazzling. And because they are dazzling, they evoke what? A response. Friends, God is dazzling. And God as he reveals himself in his word, he evokes a response. That response is worship. Last Lord's Day, as we probed Ezra chapters 1 and 2, we beheld his glory. We saw just how dazzling God is. For example, we saw God's glory in his, in his faithfulness. He is faithful in keeping his promises, isn't he? And so through the prophet Jeremiah, at the time of the Babylonian invasion, as the hordes of Babylonians invaded the southern kingdom of Judah, of Israel, and uh, destroyed, laid desolate, the city of Jerusalem and the temple, through Jeremiah, God promised 70 years of captivity, and then I will restore a remnant. This city will be rebuilt. This temple will be rebuilt. And we see in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, God is on the move. Why? He stirs the spirit of Cyrus the king. Why? in order to fulfill his word. That is dazzling. We behold God's faithfulness in keeping his promises. Secondly, for example, back in Ezra 1 and 2, we see God's, God's glory in the fact that he, his sovereignty is abundantly apparent, isn't it? Not only his faithfulness in keeping his promises, but his sovereignty in ruling his creatures. And so we have the rise and the fall of world empires. We have the coming and the going of Assyria, the coming and going of Babylon, the coming and going of Persia. We have a powerful man, the king of Persia, Cyrus. And yet we see clearly portrayed in Scripture that the Lord is the God of heaven and that all of these kingdoms are in the palm of his hand. All of these powerful men are in the palm of his hand. He actually declares through his prophet Isaiah more than a century prior to Cyrus's birth God actually declares, Cyrus, I take you by your right hand. And though you do not know me, I name you. And though you do not know me, I equip you. 
And there we see the unrivaled, the unchallenged, the unbridled sovereignty of God. And it is, simply speaking, dazzling. And as we look at those first two chapters, not only do we see his faithfulness in keeping his promises, not only do we see his sovereignty in ruling his creatures, his creation, but we see his goodness in releasing his people, in delivering his people. There are the Jews, the Israelites, those who survived the, the conflict and the Babylonian invasion. There they are residing in Babylonian territory. And yet God stirs, he moves in the hearts of his people. And he leads them out of captivity back to Jerusalem. And what a wonderful picture of God's anointed, the Lord Jesus Christ, who preaches what? Who declares what? Liberty to captives. We are not in political bondage. We are not under tyrannical bondage, so to speak, humanly speaking. We are in bondage to our sin. And just as that great exodus out of Egypt under Moses mirrored and pointed to and created an expectation of a far greater spiritual exodus, so too this exodus now from Babylon and the return of this remnant to Jerusalem points to, mirrors, prepares for, makes our hearts yearn and long for something of far greater significance and magnitude, do they not? This spiritual exodus which is realized and fulfilled and completed in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who laid down his life on behalf of prisoners, on behalf of captives, on behalf of those who are in bondage to sin, in bondage to God's judgment, and he sets us free through the power of the cross. And so we see it. We see God's goodness in delivering captives. And so his faithfulness in keeping his promises, praise God, his sovereignty, in ruling his creatures, praise God, and his goodness in delivering his people, praise God. Friend, do you respond to that? Does it, does, it, does it get you going? Does it stir the heart? Our response to a God who is dazzling is the essence of, it is the essence of worship. That's the first introductory remark. Worship is a response to God's worth. Second introductory remark is this. Worship engages the head and the heart. The head and the heart. The Lord Jesus himself makes that perfectly clear. Scripture testifies to it its entirety, but the Lord Jesus in particular states it in very succinct, clear terms to the Samaritan woman as it's recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 24. And there he says, God is spirit. Those who worship God must worship him. How? in spirit and in truth. There you have it, head and heart. Why does he emphasize those two things in that context? Well, firstly, he emphasizes the fact that we must worship God in spirit. That is, we must worship God in heart over against or in marked contrast to Jewish ritualism and traditionalism. You see, that is what the nation of, of Israel had fallen into in the days of Christ. Uh, Their religion, their worship of God had merely become external forms, external rituals, external traditions. And so the Lord Jesus says, no, (coughs) excuse me, those who worship God must do so in spirit. That is, their worship must flow from the heart. That is, their worship must be sincere. That is a sincere response to God's worth. But not only does he say that we must worship God in spirit, that is in heart, over against Jewish ritualism and traditionalism, 
He also emphasizes in that text that we must worship God in mind. Who does he have in view there? The woman to whom he's speaking, the Samaritan woman. And so not only must we worship God with our hearts, over against Jewish ritualism and traditionalism, we must worship God with our minds, over against, in marked contrast to, Samaritan error and ignorance. You see, an anti-cognitive worship of God is pagan worship. We cannot worship what we do not know. If we pretend to worship God without knowing God, that is simply paganism. You can be singing about Christ. You can be using Christian terminology. You can be using Christian phraseology. But if there is no knowledge of God as revealed in his word, and if there is no sense of his worth and, and, and estimation of his value, then simply we've just fallen into pseudo-Christianity. Another word for pseudo-Christianity is paganism. When we worship God, we do so with the heart, sincerity of heart, as we confront this dazzling God who reveals his majesty and glory in his word. And we do so with our minds. We cannot worship one whom we do not know. Worship of God is contingent upon knowledge of God. Therefore, worship engages both the head and the heart. That's the second introductory remark. The third is this. I'm going to keep this one brief. Promise. Worship is doxology. Worship is doxology. Fancy word. What do we mean by it? Simply this. Doxology is giving glory to God in word, spoken word, and in deed. And so we're giving glory to God right now in word through the preaching of Scripture. We just gave glory to God in word when Chris led us corporately in prayer. We gave glory to God in word when we sang those beautiful songs. And so we worship, and that's doxology, in word. But it doesn't end there. Worship is doxology, that is, we praise God in deed, that is, in life. As Paul says in Romans 12:1, we present our bodies, our lives, our entire being as what? A living sacrifice, which is what? Our reasonable worship. That's doxology. Doxology is giving glory to God in word and deed. I trust you got those three. Let me repeat them. Worship is a response to God's worth. That was number one. Worship engages the head and the heart. That was number two. And worship is doxology. Now we have a framework with which we can work. Return with me to the book of Ezra and follow along as I read chapter three for us. When the seventh month came, that's on the Jewish calendar, a month called Tishri, mid-September to mid-October. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Joshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place. For fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. 
So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning. Together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from their captivity, they appointed the Levites from twenty years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Joshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. Uh, This may echo something that we sang earlier this morning. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord. Because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Now remember, bear in mind the context. What's happened to this point? So in the year 586, Jerusalem has fallen. The temple has been destroyed. The temple has been burnt at the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Those remaining, the survivors, have been deported from the land of Judah into the land of Babylon. As God foretold, as God warned, as he prophesied through Isaiah, Jeremiah, other prophets. And yet, in the midst of those, those prophecies concerning Jerusalem's desolation, there is this tremendous promise, pledge on God's part. Seventy years are marked, and then a remnant will return. The time is drawing near. And so God works in the heart of a pagan king, Cyrus, king of Persia, by which he passes a proclamation. He utters this announcement, according to which those who desire among the Jews They can make that long journey from Babylon back to Jerusalem, rebuild their homes, engage in rebuilding their city, and in the reconstruction of the city of Jerusalem. God stirs in his chosen ones that remnant. The remnant returns. If you are numbered among them, use your sanctified imagination here for a moment. Imagine the scene. Captivity. Been gone all that time. Uh, Many of them have never seen Judah or Jerusalem. They were born in captivity. They don't even know where they're going. So imagine this, this rabble, this remnant of, of Jews, numbering maybe 40,000, 45,000. And they've made this long, difficult journey from Babylon, for many of them, the only land they've ever known, the only home they've ever known, back to this city which is laid waste, desolate. Uh, what are you thinking, if you're them? Uh, what's on your mind? There are a few things on my mind. I'm, I'm concerned, for example, about how am I going to feed my family? Um, there are families to feed. Yeah, we brought supplies with us from Babylon, but they're limited. They're going to run out eventually. We need to tend to our livestock. We need to get seed in the ground. We need to generate some kind of income. 
right? I'm concerned, how am I going to feed my family? Not only that, I'm concerned with how, how, how are we going to administer ourselves? How are we going to... Uh, how are we going to build our homes? Look, our homes, yes, left in ruins. The foundations are there. We can make some sort of temporary shelters. We've done that. But if we're going to live here long term, it's time to rebuild. We need to reestablish an infrastructure. We need to establish some sort of civil government in order to administer our, our internal affairs. 40,000 people, that's a large crowd to manage. So I'm concerned, firstly, about feeding my family. I'm concerned, secondly, about building my home. I'm concerned, thirdly, about the problems and issues we face. We get a hint of it in verse 3. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. See, they're not alone. In their absence, others have begun to move into the territory. Imagine the scene. You're one of those numbers. You're one of those people who, after the Babylonian invasion, for whatever reason, you moved into this land that had been vacated, left empty. And now all of a sudden, 40,000 people 70 years later have reappeared. You think you're going to have issues? 40,000 displaced people all of a sudden show up on your doorstep. And the people are afraid. Why? Because they've created a little tension. These are the things on my mind. What's on their mind? Very first verse. What did they do? They gather as one man to Jerusalem. Why? worship. That's what's on their minds. Of preeminent importance to these people. What is primarily in view, superseding all of these other earthly concerns and necessities, is gathering together as one man. Where? In the city of Jerusalem. Why? To do what? It is to worship. Now, what I want you to observe, and you'll see this again in the sermon notes, they're all there in bold print. I want to make six observations concerning their worship. And from these observations, they emerge from this chapter, chapter 3. From these observations, you'll see six lessons, truths, which apply, relevant for us, as we seek to worship God, our Maker. Truth number one, observation number one is this. First two, I'm going to breeze through quickly. Third, fourth, it's going to slow us down a bit. Number one, notice the instrument of worship. Right back in verse one. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered. Who gathered? The people gathered. This is an assembly as one man to Jerusalem. There is God's appointed instrument of worship. People. It's true, and I'm going to emphasize this in order to avoid any, any, any confusion or misinterpretation or misapplication of what I'm saying. It is true. I can worship God by myself, and I do. Praise God, I can do that. I have access to my Heavenly Father through the great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, and I can approach him in worship as an individual, as a man. I can do that. Uh, it's also true. We can worship God as families. I trust we do that regularly, that we spend a little time maybe reading God's word, praying together, perhaps even singing together. That's something we can do when we gather our family together. That's wonderful. But understand, friend, worship primarily, principally, is not an individualistic exercise, nor is it even a familial, that is a family exercise. It is a corporate exercise. God is calling out for himself a great assembly. 
He is calling out for himself a magnitude, innumerable people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. And he is gathering them as a collective whole, making them one with his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whereby they constitute what we call the mystical body of Christ. And these people right now worship God. You have the church triumphant right now worshiping before the throne of God. You have the church militant, us, right now gathering to worship. What we do here on a Sunday morning is of preeminent importance in the eyes of God. The instrument of worship is his people. We, are, we talk about the church, and we talk about Grace Community Church, and what we usually mean by that is this building, right? It's a misnomer. I don't mind the name Grace Community Church. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But this building is not the church. Never was the church, never will be the church. We as believers are the church. We could worship on the banks of the Paluxy. We could worship next door to the Expo. We could go out in the parking lot. We could worship collectively in homes. That is the, the church. A church, ecclesia, the word, you know what it really, really means? Assembly. It is an assembling together. It is a coming together of a diversity of people as one man to render unto God his inestimable worth. That is the instrument of worship, people. Second observation is this, the place of worship. Again in the first verse. When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man, where? To Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? It was the appointed place of God's worship. Why? Because what stood there, at least stood there at one time? The temple. And so just as that temporary structure, the tabernacle, provided the center of Israelite worship, it was superseded by that permanent structure, the temple. But the temple stands at the center of Jewish worship. It is temple worship. It is defined by that place. And yet the Lord Jesus utters a remarkable, simply remarkable statement. Again in John 4. In his conversation with a Samaritan woman, he stated the following, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Let me repeat that. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming, the time is coming, when neither on this mountain, that was where the Samaritans worshipped, undoubtedly in view as he spoke with the Samaritan woman, nor in Jerusalem where the Jews worship. Will you worship the Father? With one divine sweep of the hand. Do you know what the Lord Jesus does with those words? He sweeps away forever Old Testament worship. He sweeps away forever Jewish worship. He sweeps away forever a physical structure known as the temple. He sweeps away forever the Levitical offering system. He sweeps away forever the seven feasts of Jehovah. He sweeps away forever the Aaronic priesthood. All that has come before. And you Samaritans, you've called that mountain holy. Well, it's because you're a bunch of pagans and you worship in ignorance. But even the Jews who do have some knowledge of the truth but don't worship with the heart, they have Jerusalem, they have the holy mount, they have the temple. But understand this, a day is coming when it will be all gone. No one will worship the Father. The worship of the Father will not be restricted to these places. Understand, friend, let me, let, me, let me rephrase that a little bit. The worship of God is still restricted to a place, the temple. But here's the wonderful New Testament truth. We 
are that temple. We are being built up into a dwelling place of God in which there is neither Jew nor Gentile. And we, as the body of Christ, the temple of the living God, are God's abode on earth. We are his people. And so when we gather, we have this certainty that God is in our midst We are not restricted to a place. We are not restricted to sanctified, holy places. There is no such thing. There is a holy people. God's people. And whenever, wherever we gather, we have this absolute certainty that we do so as the temple of the Lord. And God dwells in us by his Holy Spirit. Third observation I want to make is this, the focus of their worship, God's altar. And so enter into verse 2 with me. I'll read right through to verse 5. Then arose Joshua, the son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel. Those names perhaps confusing you. We'll come to them in the future at some point. We will come back to those two, not this morning. The son of Shealtiel with his kinsmen. And what did they do? They built the altar of the God of Israel. Why? To offer burnt offerings on it. Why? As it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place. For fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Burnt offerings morning and evening. What else did they do? Verse 4. They kept the feast of booths. That was one of the seven annual feasts. As it is written. And offered the daily burnt offerings. More blood going on here, right? By number, according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. What is the author emphasizing here? The author is simply emphasizing that once the Jews, this remnant, had gathered as one man at Jerusalem, the first thing that is in view, the first order of business is what? It is to reconstruct the altar. When you entered into the courtyard of the, of the temple, the courtyard of the tabernacle earlier, what is the first thing we would approach and come to? It is this gigantic, enormous altar upon which all of the offerings were sacrificed. Here's an important detail. You go all the way back to verse 1. Which month does this take place in? The seventh month. That is the month of Tishri. Again, mid-September to mid-October. You go back and you read Numbers 29. Do you know how many offerings were made during that month? 219. You get the idea? You have a whole pile of blood. You have one gory, somewhat disgusting scene, might I add. Sacrifice after sacrifice. Offering after offering. As God had commanded through Moses. Why this emphasis on the altar? Why this, this emphasis on, on, on sacrificing bulls and lambs and all these other things? Why this, why this emphasis on blood? The reasoning goes all the way back to the fall, doesn't it? Genesis chapter 3, subsequent to the fall, what does God do for Adam and Eve? What is the first principle, primary lesson he teaches them? He kills animals. And with the clothing of those animals, he clothes Adam and Eve. What principal, fundamental lesson is God declaring and teaching right at the time of the fall? That we are sinners. God is holy, and the wages of sin is death. Death, death, death. And you have this this, this entire Levitical system, this Old Testament system of worship, 
designed to teach this one fundamental, essential, basic truth. The wages of sin is death. And therefore, sinful man can only approach a holy God through a penal, substitutionary sacrifice. What do I mean by penal? Penalty. A sacrifice that pays the penalty for our sin, hence substitutionary. And then with the advent of the New Testament, the dawning of the age, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we behold the Lamb of God who was prepared before the foundation of the world. The author of the epistle to the Hebrews actually refers to Christ as our altar. He is our altar. He is that penal substitutionary sacrifice, making him the essential focus of our worship. When we remember that he, as the Lamb of God, took our sin upon himself, our sin imputed to Christ. And Christ at Calvary's cross gave up his life and suffered that penalty which was due us, so that through faith and repentance being made one with the Lord Jesus Christ, our sins might be wiped clean. Our sins might be forgiven. There is the reason we worship. There is the access, the means by which we worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is the preeminent focus of all worship. It is the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what he accomplished at Calvary's cross. Now the fourth observation is this. The rule of their worship. God's word. Comes out in verses 2 through 5. We don't need to read all the verses. Just a couple of little phrases. They've built the altar in verse 2. They're offering up burnt offerings. And then look at the very last phrase. As it is written. In other words, what they are doing and how they are worshiping God is precisely how God himself mandated. It is, in other words, in accordance with God's word. And look secondly, as we move into verse 4, the very first phrase, we find that little, that little phrase again. And they kept the feast of booths. How? As it is written. Again, these aren't throwaway phrases on the part of the, on the, part of the author. Uh, still later, he's going to say that they, they sang praises to God according to how David had appointed it. And so he emphasizes three times on three occasions in this chapter, this text, that all that the Jews are doing in their approach to God, Every aspect of it, every component of it, as they approach God as one man, as they've gathered this assembly, this called out people, and as they come before him in worship, they do so in accordance with his own what? Appointed way. That is the rule of their worship, God's word. Now there is a lesson there for us. It should be our heart's desire to worship God as he has appointed us to worship him. We should, we should strive after, we should long for conformity to God's word in all things. And no different when it comes to assembling together and worshiping God. Our worship of God must be mandated by Scripture, prescribed by Scripture. Within Reformed circles, this is somewhat controversial. I, some hesitancy I mentioned it, but I think it is worth mentioning. In some Reformed circles, this, this, this mindset, uh, this truth, this principle has been known as the regulative principle throughout the last few centuries, the regulative principle. And essentially within Reformed circles, when, when believers speak of the regulative, regulative principle, although they don't always agree on exactly how it plays out in every detail, and that's fine, 
the, the, the central basis, the central premise is the same, and I think that this is something we, we subscribe to and agree to wholeheartedly, that when it comes to worshiping God, we strive to do so according to the Bible. The Bible is our rule. And so when we gather together, we, we read the Bible. As Paul commanded Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.13, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. And so in our worship, we recite Scripture collectively. Uh, I read it individually in obedience to that command. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Not only do we read the Bible, but we preach the Bible. Why? Because again, Paul commanded Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. And so we worship as God has prescribed. We worship God by reading the Bible. Why? He's commanded it. We worship God by preaching the Bible. Why? He has commanded it. We worship God by singing the Bible. Why? He has commanded it. Ephesians 5.19, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. And not only do we sing the Bible, we pray the Bible. As the Lord Jesus himself declares in Matthew 21, my house shall be called a house of? Prayer, his temple, his spiritual people, the church, this great assembly, a house of prayer. And so we have in Scripture our form of worship, our content of worship, our focus of worship clearly mandated. The emphasis is on the Word of God. And so we read the Word of God, declaring it together. We preach and proclaim the Word of God. We pray the Word of God, that is, our prayers reflect and express the teaching of Scripture. And we sing the Word of God. We focus on songs which articulate for us in wonderful forms the truths of Scripture as we respond to God's glory. And not only that, but we see the Bible in two ordinances. We saw one this morning. It's baptism. We'll see one next Lord's Day. The Lord's Supper. Communion service. And so we have God's prescribed order, content, form of worship. And we call that the regulative principle. That all that we do when we gather corporately, collectively as the body of Christ, this local expression of the body of Christ, we seek to do so in accordance with the Word of God. Now let me add two points to that, two very important points. First is this. The regulative principle allows for liberty. Variety, perhaps, is a better word. It allows for variety. And so... We can sing three songs. We can sing 13 songs. We can have four people pray, short prayers. We could have one person pray, one really long prayer. Uh, We could read six chapters of Scripture. We could read six verses of Scripture. We can use music that was written yesterday, or we can use music that was written 500 years ago. We can use individual cups at the Lord's Supper, or we could use one cup. We could use a real wine. We could use grape juice. The focus of worship is the Word of God. Singing the Word, praying the Word, preaching the Word. That is the focus. Seeing the Word in those two ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And yet that principle allows for wonderful variety. But a second important truth is this. It protects from impropriety. It protects from impropriety. So, for example, next Lord's Day, why don't Brian and I put on a drama for you? One, Brian can't act, but that besides. Why why don't we get together and put on a little drama for you rather than preach the word? 
because to do so would be to step outside the parameters of Scripture. It would be to introduce into worship something that we do not have in God's word. It would be, dare I say, to offer strange fire to the living God. We follow the Israelites' example here, not the forms that were relevant to them under that old covenant. The Lord Jesus pushed all of that aside. Now as the church, we worship as mandated in the New Testament. And here are the things which are the the object of our focus as we seek to glorify God, as we seek to come to grips with his worth through his word and respond in kind. That's the rule of worship, God's word. Number five, the fifth observation, the result of worship, God's kingdom. Into verse six we go. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So their goal is to rebuild it, but nothing's happened yet. So what do they do? Here's a wonderful expression of their worship. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Some time passes, verse 8, now in the second year. So time has passed. Why? Because they need to wait for these trees to arrive. They've given the money. They've given of their resources. They've purchased what they need in order to, to lay the foundation of the temple. Now they wait. Now in the second year after they're coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. They're still worshiping. This is worship. The furtherance of God's kingdom. And we see them not only laboring, not only working, not only giving of themselves and their own time, but giving financially, giving their resources, not out of guilt, not not out of a selfish end, but these are expressions of their corporate collective worship as they understand what God has done for them in bringing them back and restoring them to the land, as they perceive how God is watching over them, supplying for them, protecting them, as they understand just how dazzling God is, and as they have this sense of God's worth from their worship, and as an expression of worship flows what? Giving. Serving, getting involved. Why do we give? Why? Because we worship. That's why we give. We give because we esteem God. We give because we esteem God's worth. He is worthy. And giving naturally becomes what? An expression of worship. Why do we serve? Why do, why do we sign up for that extended session? Clipboard probably still going around. Why, why do we do that? Why? It's an act of worship. We do so because we esteem God's worth. And, and, and that takes hold of every, every avenue, every aspect of our lives, and we express His worth in serving and getting involved. Why do we teach in Sunday school? Why do I teach? Why do, why do we bother? do so as, a, as an expression of our worship. We do so as an act of worship. We do so to lead to greater worship. It all flows from our appreciation of, our sense of, 
is inestimable work. Wonderful this morning. If you missed it, you missed something spectacular. That missions report we had earlier from, from the Woodalls in northern India. Why do they do that? Why do Chris and Monica do that? Why, why is Rick heading up a team to Asia in June? Uh, why is there a small team going to Haiti and Guatemala in, uh, in early, early May? Why, why get involved in missions? Why bother? Understand this and listen carefully. We do not get involved in missions to see people saved. And I need to explain that. We get involved in missions to see people worship God. Their salvation is merely the means to an end. We get involved in missions. What keeps Chris and Monica in some far distant land in the days of despair and loneliness and keeps them there? What keeps Rick going year after year to to Asia? What motivates and compels anyone to share the gospel, proclaim the gospel, is this overarching goal, heart-burning desire. It is the worship of God flowing from a heightened sense of his worthiness. That's what we catch just a little glimpse of here on the part of these Jews. They're given right, left, and center, free will offerings. They're collecting these trees, all that they need for the foundation. Everyone's putting shoulder to the work. Why? Because they know their God. And they know their God is worthy. Sixth observation is this. The object of God's worship is praise. Verses 10 and 11. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets. Imagine the sound. And the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals. So we had Ryan, didn't we, on the cymbals this morning? To praise the Lord. According to... The directions of David, king of Israel. Now notice what they sang. They sang responsively. We did that a little bit this morning. Praising and giving thanks to the Lord. Why? For he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. There is the object of worship. It is the praise of God's glory. The Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Why? To the praise of his glory. The Son of God, the eternal Word of God, entered into time, bore such humiliation at Calvary's cross, the Father's wrath at Calvary's cross, the purchasing price of our redemption. Why? To the praise of His glory. The Son, having ascended on high and assumed authority over all things, sent forth His Spirit, His Spirit who calls and seals His people for the day of redemption. Why? For the praise of his glory. The praise of his glorious grace. The praise of his glorious mercy. The praise of his glorious love. We sing on occasion. On the mount of crucifixion. Fountains open deep and wide. Through the floodgates of your mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Here is love. Like mighty rivers poured unceasing from above. Heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. His steadfast love endures forever. And therefore we praise him. Our Father, we take time even now with our lips in prayer as we find ourselves in your presence to give you all the praise, all the honor,
all the glory, for you alone are worthy. We praise you for the glorious gospel that you have revealed in the coming of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you that there is forgiveness in him, in him alone. We praise you that there is peace of mind and a cleansed conscience in him, in him alone. We praise you that there is hope of eternal life in him, in him alone. Each and every blessing we enjoy is rooted in, founded upon the blood of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we praise you this day. And we ask you to receive our worship and our thanksgiving in his most beloved name. Amen.